0: Amen. You can be seated. Give our God some applause this morning. Amen. (laughs) Crown Him with many crowns. John chapter 12 is where we will be this morning. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. I want to encourage you to please be in prayer again for our Albuquerque mission team. Uh, Many of them are on the road this morning. There's many of them I know who are listening in. Want you all to know we love you. We're praying for you. And uh, pray that God gives you great fruitfulness this week. John chapter 12. As Donnie mentioned, we will be talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we read through this, I'll make a few comments before we get to the end. We'll be reading verses 12 through 19. It says, on the next day. Now, previously we saw Jesus come to Jerusalem, uh, or to, uh, to Bethany, visit his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead weeks prior. And they made him a meal and his disciples. And we saw last week Mary anointed his feet with the fragrant oil. Jesus said it was for his burial. And then we see, as we continue to read, the large crowd who had come to the feast, Uh, there was a feast going on in Jerusalem, it was the time of Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, palm tree branch was a symbol of victory and triumph, and they went out to meet him, and they began to shout Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. It is—it's uh, more of a victory shout than a plea. It's almost as if the salvation has happened. Save now, blessed hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. In verse 14: Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, "Fear not, daughter of Zion! Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt." We'll pause there for a second. The other gospel writers. Give us similar details as this, but Matthew reveals that there were in fact two donkeys: a mother and her colt. The colt had never been ridden. And we assume that they took the mother as well. They laid, they didn't know which one Jesus was going to ride on, so they laid their their garments on top of both. And we assume, in order to keep the, the young colt docile and under control, that they perhaps led the mother in front and jesus rode behind not on the big donkey but on the smaller donkey so get that image in your head these things verse 16 his disciples did not understand at first but when jesus was glorified then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him verse 17 so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason, also, the people went and met him. John's just explaining how you got so many people and how they ended up going to meet him because they had heard that he had performed this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. This day uh, is typically called Palm Sunday, and this event is called the Triumphal Entry. And around the time of Easter, many churches, the Sunday before Easter, will um, observe this as a traditional day of worship as well—Palm Sunday, because you're looking at the Sunday before Easter. This is the the unusual and the unique and the special telling of Jesus entering into. Jerusalem. Now, he had come to Jerusalem many times before, but this was different. News had traveled fast about his raising of Lazarus from the dead. The talk of the city, according to the Apostle John, was whether Jesus would come to the Passover feast or not. And so the whole city was stirred up. All four gospel writers give an account of this event because it is important. Each is similar, and yet there are unique details. That each presents. This morning, we're going to look at three things about John's depiction of this. One, we see a worshiping crowd. Second, we see a worrying enemy. And third, we see a willing king. First, a worshiping crowd. There are actually two crowds that are mentioned in this passage there's the crowd that was there that had been hanging around, many of them had witnessed him raise Lazarus from the dead, and they were hanging around. This is the the one in verse 17 that continued to testify about what they saw. But then there's also a larger crowd. Now, during the week of Passover, historians tell us that there could have been up to a million people or maybe more than a million people in Jerusalem at the time. You see, Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem, and there were certainly a lot of Jews that lived in, in Galilee, and the surrounding regions that would come up to Jerusalem each year, and they would come up and worship during the Passover festivals. And so there were tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And so this crowd, you need to get in your mind when you watch the movies because they can't provide to pay enough extras to be there. The little movies might have 40, 50 people around Jesus as he comes into the city. But it's quite possible there were tens of thousands of people in this crowd. We have no way of knowing for sure, but it's certainly possible. And and from this event, we learn some things, first of all, about worship. We see this worshiping crowd, and we learn some things. The first thing we learn is that worship is a response to revelation. Now, what is revelation? Revelation is when God reveals something, usually about himself or about an event, or about a person. Revelation, reveal. That's what revelation is. That's why the the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation of John. It's a big reveal. There are two kinds of revelation that we know about as Christians. The first is general revelation, or what's called natural revelation. This is nature. These are things that we can learn from biology, and from from astronomy, and from nature. Romans chapter 1 tells us that Really, there is no such thing as an atheist. There's only people who know that God exists, but they suppress the evidence because, Paul tells us in Romans, they can look at creation and they can see God's invisible attributes clearly in the things that have been made, namely, His eternal power and divine nature. And so you can look at nature and you can understand, you can see the creative mind and you can see the power and you can reason the eternity and the deity of an intelligent designer. You can get that by going out in the woods. And this revelation is enough to condemn you. Because you know a God. You know there's a wise Creator, but you have not sought Him. And you know that there is sin in your life because your conscience is also a part of that natural revelation. And you know that you are a sinner. And you know that there is a God. And you know that something is not right. And that you are in your nature, in the deepest part of you, there's something broken and something wicked and something rebellious. And so, that revelation won't help you with salvation. But we know of a second kind of revelation, a special revelation. We have God's Word. He has given us a special revelation of Himself. And He has given His Holy Spirit to help us interpret this revelation, and to dwell within us. And so we know about Jesus the Savior. We don't just know about our problem and the problem of humanity, but we know about the Savior. And so what we're looking at this morning is revelation, and this crowd is responding to a revelation. Something has happened. And it's evidence, number two, by action. Worship is a response to revelation, but it's also... Evidence by action. How did the crowd react to the revelation of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? They worshipped. Worship's going to look different from person to person, culture to culture. But it's not going to be mere lip service, or it's not going to be mental assent to a few facts. It's not going to be just spouted out in things that you say. It's going to evidence itself in how you live. and, And... what you do it's going to overflow in some way how do you and I respond to revelation this crowd proclaimed him publicly shouts confessions of who he is and what he was going to do they cut down tree branches and they put in front so he could walk across they they even took their garments and they they laid on the donkeys and they laid in front just so he could walk over them it cost them a little bit is your worship costly is it sacrificial or is it a chore do you delight in it is your worship of Jesus exciting to you is it as exciting as the game is worship of Jesus in you hard to keep in is it is it willing to is it wanting to bust out or is it bored? We have such a problem with boredom. Christians should never get bored. Should never get bored. If you feel the sinfulness of boredom in your life, remember you've got Jesus. If you go to Jesus, friend, your life will never be boring. You'll worship from the overflow. There's always something to do. There's always something to discover. There's always something to delight in. When we get excited about someone else, things happen. You get excited about someone famous or some athlete. You start taking pictures. You go get autographs. You start cheering. You go crazy. One of the weirdest things in, in sports is how athletes now, I see tennis players do it, soccer players and others, they take off their sweaty jersey and they throw it to people. What's that? And people think, yes, I got a cloth dripped with somebody's sweat. Hooray! NBA players take off their stinky shoes that their feet have been in. Whether they, who knows what they've got on their feet? And they throw it to people and say, all right, I've got their shoes. When we're excited about someone, things happen in us. Like these people. When we go to the game, our feelings go public. Has your worship gone public? Is it public? Uh, Since I'm so accustomed to giving sports illustrations when it comes to Revelation, I I thought I'd branch out a little bit, and I'd give an illustration from the TV show Fixer Upper. Many of you know this, Chip and Joanna Gaines. How many of you have ever watched this show? You know who I'm talking about. Okay. Okay, this is a this is a show. Most of you, this is a show where, um, uh, and and I've seen many episodes actually, uh, but used to what they would do th- this show, they would go and they would take these houses that were just falling apart or they were just horribly ugly, and they would fix them up for people, and they made an entire show about this, and it, and it's a really good show, and what they would do, one of the neat things that I, I always liked that they would do is. Um, once they finished the house, they would bring the, the couple or whoever back, and they would put them on the road in front of the house, and they would have a, a giant life-size-to-scale picture in front that was on rollers. And it looked like the old house, but behind it was the new house. And what, what Joanna would say is, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And that was the big moment. And then there was a big reveal as they moved the old picture out, and they saw the new House. And usually the lady goes crazy with excitement, and the guy gives a half excited craze because in his mind he's thinking, okay, let's go inside the house to see if we got our money's worth. And so there's this kind of, you know, there's always this kind of holdback. But that's revelation. When there's a reveal, and when there's a reveal, there is a reaction, or at least there should be. This crowd is, is busting out with, rea- they are so excited and they're reacting. Because of the revelation. Third, not only is uh, not only is a response to revelation and it's evidenced by actions, but your motive matters. Why are they worshiping Jesus? Now, one of the hardest things to figure out about this passage is whether the worship of this crowd is legitimate or not. In some ways, it is. They're really excited about Jesus, but why are they excited? They're excited because they saw the sign. And many of them, as Donnie referenced earlier, a lot of them were worshiping Jesus because they thought He was going to come and be their political deliverer. They thought because He had the power to raise the dead that they could use this power to overthrow Rome. The Pharisees were scared that that's what was going to happen. And we don't know whether their worship was true or not. The indication was... With most of them that it wasn't. Why? Because where is this crowd when he's being hung on a cross? Where are their cheers of Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, when the king is hanging from the cross. Where are they? Now maybe some of them were legitimate. Jesus did appear to over 500 of his disciples at once, at once after he resurrected. but there could have been thousands and tens of thousands. Where were they? I don't know, and I don't don't want to to slander any true believers that were worshiping him. But I'll just say this. There's a lesson here for us that sometimes the ones in our culture, or any culture that make the biggest show, have the most shallow roots. Like Jesus said in the parable of the soils, the, the plant in the rocky soil sprung to life, but it soon withered because it had no depth to take root. So the question for us is regarding our worship and in comparing ourselves to this crowd, are you and I making a show or are we showing who we belong to? Are we showing the true and joyful worship that should come from a real believer's life? Second, we see Not only a worshiping crowd, but we see worrying enemies. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees were arguing with one another. The Pharisees were the rigid and self-righteous spiritual guides and rulers of the day. They were the self-proclaimed keepers of the law and the ways of God. And they incorrectly saw Jesus as a threat and a danger. And the job that they were not doing, well, was keeping him silent. That's what they were talking about. You're not doing any good. You're not keeping him silent. Your plan isn't working, and they were arguing together. In the previous chapter, we saw their motive and their plan. Verse 47 of chapter 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and the council and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everybody will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove our place and our nation. Verse 53, so from that day on they plotted to kill him. And they had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. Brothers and sisters, the the world still sees Jesus as a threat. You know this. Some don't understand him most misunderstand him some rebel against what they rightly understand about him when they look into the mirror that is Jesus they don't like what he says about them what he shows them they don't like what he teaches they don't want him in control of their life do you are you ready to take whatever Jesus says your life should be or Is your worship shallow? Are you worshiping Jesus because He'll do this little thing for you or that little thing for you or because He'll help your life be a little bit better? He'll be the spice of life for you. Or are you sold out and ready for whatever He brings your way? Make no mistake, Jesus has enemies and if you worship Him, so will you. That's not our desire. But apologizing for Jesus... While trying to worship Him, do not mix. Apologize if there's fault in you, but never apologize for the perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus. Are you ready to worship Him despite the enemies? One thing I like about this crowd, they didn't care what the Pharisees thought. They were praising and worshiping Jesus as He proceeded into the city. Their very plan was to arrest Him, but they didn't plan on this. This was too much. This was outside of their control. They can't arrest him when there's thousands of people that are cheering for him. That would make them the bad guys. In fact, they can do nothing more publicly unless they can smear him, unless they can lie about him, unless they can turn the people against him. The most they can do is try to manage the situation in the moment, which is what they try to do. In Luke's account, Luke tells us that, they asked Jesus to rebuke his disciples for praising him, and he told them, if these are silent, then the rocks will cry out. Third, we see a worshiping crowd, we see a worrying enemy, finally we see a willing king. And it brings us to the uniqueness of this event. Jesus, for most of his ministry, actually does tell his disciples and others to be quiet, to not tell people. He's accustomed to withdrawing himself as much as possible from public notice. He told his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ in, verse, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 16. When he raised Jairus' daughter, he charged them that they should tell no one about it. When he came down from the mountain where he was transfigured with Moses and Elijah, he gave orders that they should tell no one the things they had seen until he was risen. And in the 6th chapter of John, we saw that when he fed the people, the people, that group of people, wanted to come and make him king by force. And he escaped them and departed to a mountain by himself. And so his habit was to do things but not make a big public show about it and to, to keep it relatively hidden or completely hidden. But here, as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday... He's ushered in by thousands. And finally, he is willing and he is openly declaring himself as king and allowing people to declare him as king. He receives the worship. He receives the praise. And he sets in motion the rapid events of his own doom. There was a strategy to his ministry. As he began to reveal himself more and more, there were some who pushed for him to declare himself in a major public or political way. His brothers tried to do this. In John chapter 7, we've already studied this. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews are trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. And Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived. And if you think, much like a lot of the liberal, left-leaning churches today, theologically, that Jesus is just supposed to be a healer, a miracle worker. He's supposed to be the person that teaches others how to love. You'd be very confused as well when he says, my time has not yet come, because he's already doing those things. He's already healing blind eyes and healing crippled legs and and telling people about how to love one another and how to obey God's law. But God's plan for his son is not merely that he be a miracle worker, or a great teacher, or the world's genie in a bottle. It is for him to become its king. God spoke to David in the Old Testament and said this to King David, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. The Davidic covenant that God made with David is fulfilled in Jesus. There is a purpose that Christ has that he has been unfolding for years that is now being made public as he enters Jerusalem. And so we return again to John's particular reason for writing his biography of Jesus the way that he does. And it's this. You find it in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose. It's extremely helpful for understanding his book. Each of the gospel writers includes similar and yet different elements of this entry into Jerusalem. John is making a clear point. He's showing us how Jesus is without a doubt the one whom all of history is pointing to. He is the one who has been revealed as the Messiah, God the Son, the Son of God, who has been revealed for the glory of God and for our salvation. And we know this by looking at the two prophecies that John highlights. The first foretells the very words of Jesus's audience and one of his very method of entrance into the city. Verse 13. They took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These words are a fulfillment of Psalm 118, written most likely a thousand years before Jesus was born. The second Is in verse 14. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This was a prophecy of Zechariah the prophet, 500 years before Jesus was born. Now I want you to think about that. We throw big numbers around. 500 years is almost as long as America has been discovered as a continent in modern times. Christopher Columbus, 1492. You're talking about a huge amount of time. And God wrote that. God God allowed a prophet to speak that 500 years about how Jesus would enter a city, what animal he would come in on. The key word in each of these prophecies is king. Kingship was on John's mind. And there's some great ironies about this king. He doesn't come in on a great horse. He doesn't come in with pomp and arrogance. He comes in on the least of the beasts of burden that could carry him. Not even on a donkey, but a donkey's colt. It was a sign of humility. And it was a colt on which no one had ever sat. Under the Mosaic law, a sacrificial animal could not have been worked previously. and So this is a testimony of the sacrificial nature of Jesus' life. He was born of a virgin. He would die in a new and unused tomb. Everything in the man's life pointed to his purity and his sacrificial perfection. One day he will return, and it won't be on a donkey. It will be on a white horse, a war horse, to claim his throne over the earth. That entrance that we await will show his power. It will show his military might. It will show his unbridled authority and rule. This donkey, however, was for humility. It was for sacrifice. It was for peace. And it was to point us to the one who can give each of us his peace. Kind of a funny thing, but a sad thing. A a, a year ago, Louisiana-based prosperity false, false gospel con man, Jesse Duplantis, who actually preached here at a neighboring church a few years ago, announced that he was seeking donations so that he could purchase a $54 million private jet. Real humble guy. And he said this, I really believe, he's got a real Cajun accent too if you've ever listened to him. I'm not going to attempt it this morning. He said, I really believe that if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be in an airplane, preaching the gospel all over the world. Wow. Wow. Aside from the obvious and shameless defense of a greedy and narcissistic lifestyle, Mr. Duplantis forgets that Jesus ascended to heaven. He didn't need an airplane for that. He doesn't need an airplane now. Jesus the king could have chosen a king's horse, but he didn't. Jesus the king could have taken his parade to the palace, but instead we will see him in a few weeks at the temple. Jesus the king did not ascend a throne that week, He ascended a cross. We sing a song a lot around here. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And Not just for you, but for all of God's children throughout the ages. He was a willing king, and he alone knew. Think about this. As he heard the shouts of praise and adoration and hope, he knew that he was traveling into Jerusalem for the last time to meet his own death and punishment for our sins. The disciples were unaware of this, it says. They didn't understand how all this fit together. They thought it was all a big failure. And they didn't understand until it was all over that this was all part of the real victory of the king. See, the triumphal entry is about the kingship of Jesus. And that's what we should be excited about today. The famed preacher, S.M., uh, the famed uh, black preacher, S.M. Lockridge, had a few things to say about Jesus as king. I wish I could memorize this uh, and say it to you, but I'm just going to read it this morning because it's a lot. But I'd like to read it to you this morning as we close. It's going to take a while, but I want you to listen. Listen to how this man thought of Jesus as his king. My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. My King is the only one whom there are no means of measure can define His limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of His shoreless supplies. No barriers can hinder Him from pouring out His blessing. Well, well, He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my King. He's God's Son. He's the sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in Himself. He's August. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well... He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you can choose to call him. Well, he's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes And he saves. He's strong. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives the sinners. He discharges the debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is the king of knowledge, he's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yes. Yes, that's my king my king yes his office is manifold his promise is sure his light is matchless his goodness is limitless his mercy is everlasting his love never changes his word is enough his grace is sufficient his reign is righteous his yoke is easy and his burden is light well i wish i could describe him to you but he's indescribable yes he's incomprehensible he's invincible He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heavens of heavens cannot contain Him, let alone a man explain Him. You can't get Him out of your mind. You can't get Him off your hands. You can't outlive Him and you can't live without Him. That's my King. Yes. He always has been and He always will be. I'm talking about how He had no predecessor and He'll have no successor. There was nobody before Him and there'll be nobody after Him. You can't impeach Him. And he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Thine. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Well, all the power belongs to my king. We're around here talking about black power and white power and green power, but it's God's power. Thine is the power, yes, and the glory. We try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is all His. Yes. Yes. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And ever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all the forevers, then amen. Friends, He's a glorious King. But there is no triumphal entry for you If he has not entered into your life and become your king, will you make him your king today? Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our King Jesus. He is matchless, he is unprecedented, he is worthy. Father, I pray that this image of His triumphant entry into Jerusalem on this tiny donkey will imprint into our minds and speak to us of His wonderful nature, of His humble heart, of His great wisdom, of His great love for us. And may it speak to us of Your glory. Only He could do this. Help us to worship Him today. And if there's anyone under the sound of my voice in this room today or listening that is not trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray You would help them to repent today of their sin. Turn from it and turn to the only King who can save. The only one who can give them new life. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.